AJ Paris Ram has roots in South Asia, the Caribbean, and the settler cities of Halifax, Ottawa, and Vancouver. He's an associate professor in the departments of International Development Studies, History, and Political Science at Dalhousie University in Chibuktuk, Halifax, on unceded and unsurrendered Mi'kmaq territory. His research interests focus on the politics of colonialism and structural forms of violence founded and exacerbated by and through imperialism. Alex Kishnabish is a writer, researcher, and teacher committed to collective liberation who also lives in Chibuktuk. He's a professor in sociology and anthropology at Mount St. Vincent University. His research focuses on the radical imagination, social justice, and social movements. In our conversation, we look at some of the ideas from their forthcoming book from Fernwood Press, Frequently Asked White Questions. The book is really inspired by a degree of frustration about some of the current constraints on anti-racist education. It comes out of frustration, but also inspiration. They were frustrated by the insufficiency of existing efforts, given especially the current state of affairs in the world, with a resurgent far-right populism winning political ground, but they were also inspired to create space for people to pose questions that, especially in the case of white folks like myself, we might feel somewhat anxious about asking, because there are certain expectations within existing social justice spaces. These are pressing questions, and it's concerning that resistance to asking them could prevent some from entering into or considering anti-racist politics. So their book, was the outgrowth of a YouTube show where they saw specific patterns emerge from the questions that were being asked. It's clear that there were specific things on people's minds, and so they wrote the book in order to catalog and constructively engage with those patterns, those questions, those concerns that keep people from being able to even imagine a multiracial society and solidarity within it. We talked about a number of issues that exist institutionally as well. Alex talks about the tendency to see universities as a site of activism. He thinks that's a real issue because, in his words, it sequesters activism. Instead of trying to play expert, he wants to try to move past, quote, moralistic denunciation and lecturing toward a model of generosity and genuineness. As AJ puts it, basic respect has become more difficult at a time of conflict and polarization. This is for him where the left has collectively sort of missed the boat. He says it's underestimated right populism and failed to adequately address the political moment. In the face of these failures, they want to experiment with more evocative methods on what needs to be done. We talk about an array of subjects, including the politics of imperial mourning in the wake of the Queen's death. They feel like it's undeniably a moment for public education, but insist that we need to reckon with the burden of history. Imperial nostalgia, to use AJ's term, is a smokescreen. And yet it's important that we consider the degree to which this moment represents an opening to start conversations about reparations and the ongoing violent effects of colonialism. The crucial question from their perspective is, who is going to come up with a narrative that is, quote, savvy and engaging enough to capture public attention and gain traction in an era of persistent white supremacy and a potent attachment to past and present frameworks for maintaining hierarchy? These are not ideas that are easy to drive home. Arguing for an anti-capitalist politics is not necessarily going to resonate with all people or publics, but they still bring it into the conversation in ways that are convincing and bring it more specifically into the conversation about ecological justice movements and anti-racism. 
One of the biggest takeaways here is the idea that where we start out ontologically has a crucial effect on where we end up. In AJ's words, it's ontology rather than epistemology that is at stake here. Rather than just a matter of knowledge, it's about, quote, the nuts and bolts that go into cultivating whole systems of knowledge and approaches to ethics. So, yeah, I was sort of sitting here uh, waiting for you, you both, and just like trying to think of like how, how do I, I kind of start these interviews in sim similar ways. And I was going to say that I was uh, like, it occurred to me to say that I was jazzed to talk to you. And then I realized how white that kind of sounded. Um, and then I was like, well, I don't want to say that. Uh, but then maybe I do. Because <laughs> the book that we're talking about um, is frequently asked white questions. Um, and it it is a it is a book that is like full of advice and insights. And maybe like one of the primary ones is sort of getting comfortable with discomfort, with forms of self-reflexivity and just trying to lay bare your positionality in some way. So I think admitting that I'm jazzed for this conversation <laughs> is probably a good place to start. Um, but um, so, you know, the the book, which, you know, I should say grew out of a series of episodes uh, uh, sponsored, I guess, hosted by Fernwood that you called Safe Space for White Questions um, is a book that's forthcoming from Fernwood. But um, is so I want to start by asking about like that, that transition from you know, having these live conversations to creating a book. So, I, you know, I rewatched the episode where you actually announce that you're writing a book and there's like all this palpable excitement. But one of the notable things is that, of course, like the title changes from safe space for white questions to frequently asked white questions, which is interesting. But mm -hmm. the book doesn't like do away with that language. There is um, there's a specific page where you talk about um, how you you genuinely believe that, uh, uh, you know, white people need a safe space for de-radicalizing, mm -hmm. uh, a mm -hmm. safe space in which to work through these things. Um, and you also sort of reflect on this kind of cheeky use of safe space uh, for your for your YouTube series and, and what you're doing with that phrase. So, like, I'm curious about the, the work that it took you to, um, you know, actually uh, host these these dialogues. It seemed just so intense. <laughs> like the openness that you had to have to like all of these difficult questions, like taking them seriously and maintaining your own kind of um, like you talk about this in the book, kind of emotional intelligence in relationship to these these questions. Mm -hmm. So it's not to sort of stigmatize those that are asking them. Um, what was your experience doing that series and how did that experience actually like inform the book? I would say it's a it was it was a, quite a learning process from the beginning outwards because um, we started you know our first our first attempt was in person actually before the pandemic and then afterwards when we went online before Fernward came on to kind of help us with the tech we had you know some awesome students helping us out but the intensity of actually parsing through some of the uh, questions just to kind of give you a bit of like the back end of what happens there on the show. Uh, so the show certainly like we, mm -hmm. you know, we read out the questions and we answer them in all the ways that you just described. But there sometimes are some like just brutal questions that we are not going to take up, you know, some questions that are it's kind of one of the benefits right. of being able to control the back end. 
So um, we can decide, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, this is a mean-spirited question. So we always say uh, on all of our episodes, any well-intentioned question, which is inherently subjective. So then we have to mm-hmm. kind of think about what's this. So is it is it in, is it well-intentioned if somebody's question, we still have it out there, eh, Alex? The one where it's like, AJ wrote an article in 2017 <laughs> and it was garbage. And <laughs> I think, I think that, that's the question where you get denounced. Yes. <laughs> One day I want to answer it. Are we talking about pathological white fragility in the Canadian nation? That article? Uh, yeah, it probably, it might've had, it might've <laughs> been that one. <laughs> that's a great article. <laughs> yeah, Thank no. Um, but and in fact, I think like that article articulate, if we're talking about the same one mm-hmm. um, does talk about some of the, uh, reasons why the I think like the gen uh, reasons for the genesis of this uh, YouTube series, right? Like very much, so. um, you know, the 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 inability to handle racial stress that you talk about in that article. Mm-hmm. How white racial fragility increases the risk of racial radicalization. Mm-hmm. You're trying to defuse that bomb with That's this it. YouTube series. That was it. Like we were really trying in, in, in that early conceptualization where we're thinking like, how can we get to people where they are if where they are is, you know, maybe in a basement somewhere watching Jordan Peterson videos <laughs> and they need to see an alternative, a respectful alternative to that. So, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think we've fully, uh, Alex can speak to this too. I don't think we've fully figured out how to get into all those nasty algorithms, but that's kind of, <laughs> at least for safe space, uh, that's kind of what we were hoping to be able to do there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the, uh, for, you know, for me, the, the genesis really was sitting around with AJ and, and our partners and, you know, other, you know, fellow travelers along the way and having conversations around what we were frustrated with, what we were inspired by around uh, efforts to, yeah, I mean, de-radicalize white people is a great way to approach it. We can talk about it as popular anti-racist education as well, I think. And, you know, no, no shade thrown at all on any of the really robust existing efforts out there. But I think we can clearly see by the kind of the state of the world right now that if those efforts were sufficient, we'd probably be in a better place right now. So, we were just thinking what little piece can we contribute to this that um, maybe isn't being done as much as some of those other pieces. And so, you know, this idea of opening up a space where uh, white folks can come and ask questions that hopefully they're sincere about, but they feel either really anxious to ask in, you know, in a sort of explicitly social justice context, like an activist context, or even in the context of more like, you know, um, you know, mixed, mixed groups where they're afraid that they're going to say something that's going to be perceived as racist or whatever. And, and we wanted to open that space up. And uh, in doing the series, which was, uh, as AJ's reflected on great and, and, and really inspiring for the most part, despite the occasional question we get that that really touches a nerve. But um, aside mm-hmm. from that, we started to notice, and certainly uh, when we started to work with Burnwood, our, our producers started to notice you know, this kind of like, oh, you guys are getting, you know, some of the same questions time and time again. And that wasn't a problem for us at all. But we did start to notice, you know, a lot of consistency. So we thought, hmm, maybe these are things that are really commonly on people's minds who are struggling mostly silently with this desire to be 
anti-racist allies or to de-radicalize some young white person in their in their family, their kin group, their household, whatever. Um, and maybe we can just put together a little short, snappy book that speaks in fairly plain language uh, and with a bit of humor and compassion to those people. So it can be a resource out there that they don't have to go to YouTube for. Uh, but we love the mm-hmm. YouTube uh, series, obviously. So that, that was really the impetus behind it. There's so much energy in the series and that energy gets translated into the book. I, I definitely think. And I want to come back to the use of humor um, and, and to some extent, the compassion, because like the two things definitely do, you can see how they go hand in hand. Like um, there'll be moments of like just a stinging joke. And then you'll tell the audience, your reader, relax. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the, the, um, the issue of sort of, uh, accessibility is, is interesting to me. Like mm. the idea that you kind of m- wanted to move past existing strategies. Uh, there's a moment in the book where you talk about how just most early on, you say like most people are never going to read the work that maybe influenced your thinking, uh, that mm-hmm. for those of that can, can get behind the academic paywall, uh, that might transform their thinking. There's this like ethic of accessibility in the book, um, that does come from that just like deep desire to de-radicalize people who just don't have access to those kinds of um, privatized forms of, of knowledge production. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, also the kinship relation stuff. Like I was thinking about, uh, I don't want to call her out, but my own mom, like a lot of the time reading this book, just like um, <laughs> this is giving me the tools to th- think through how to more compassionately talk to people that I love. Thanks. Mm. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess before that, before getting into that kind of stuff, I, I wanted to ask just practically, when you were creating the book, how you, you know, sequence the questions, like it's this, it seems like a ranking, almost like a, a <laughs> you know, in the cultures of the internet, it is like a, it is composed like a list. Right. Um, and, you know, whether the book consciously tried to prioritize specific impasses to racial solidarity, if you could just like narrate how you arrived at the 10 questions, mm-hmm. maybe what sorts of questions you, you considered including and rejected what the criteria was there. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, too. And um, maybe I'll just kick that one off. Um, so when we decided to actually put this book together, um, I, I sort of started things off by going through the episodes. And we thankfully had, you know, this great team of folks behind us, many of whom uh, were students working with AJ, uh, but also the great folks at Fernwood who had, you know, who produced transcripts for us. And, um, and so that made life infinitely easier. Um, sure. But we could go through the transcripts and see and, you know, it's kind of where um, I did feel like I was bringing some of the, uh, the, the qualitative research experience to bear on it, because mm-hmm. it's funny, I mean, obviously, people say things, um, and they sort of like, they're, they're riffing off similar intention and question, but they're not using the same words for it as somebody else might. So one of the challenges was to see, okay, what are what are the kind of consistent threads that are running through our series? And, and we just started off by like putting together a super rough list of stuff that was just popping up again and again. And um, I think the, I mean, maybe AJ can correct me on this one. I don't remember if we talked really specifically about order. Um, I mean, we must have at some point along the way, but I think we tried to move in a way that does take the reader from sort of like some of the introductory questions that people often have. So the first question we ask and, and try to answer is, can you be racist against white people? Which mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the, the big entry points, I think, to this conversation. 
around racial solidarity and, and, and justice in our society. And then we kind of wrap up with, you know, what is, what is the struggle for collective liberation like look like and how can you sort of like practically interface with that? So, and in between there's, there's, I don't think there's exactly a ladder, but there's certainly a rhythm. I think we try to achieve that balances some of the big questions, you know, some of those big, more abstract questions, like, I don't know, like what is cultural appropriation and how can I avoid doing it with this stuff? Like, you know, how can I make uh, anti-racism a part of my everyday life? And, mm-hmm. um, and we try to go back and forth as a way of grounding it. And, and I mean, just, you know, in our minds, humanizing it. I think these are the questions that people on, on, on a day-to-day basis are, are thinking about and are dealing with, you know, <clears throat> office conflicts, <laughs> you know, family mm-hmm. issues, uh, arguments around the dinner table. You know, we, I think we spend so much time and, and I mean, not incorrectly focusing on some of those, like the biggest, most dramatic manifestations of uh, racial animosity, right? We think about, you know, the, the, this like, awful parade of mass killers motivated by racial animosity um and and we should rightly focus on that but on on the other hand that's not really the tenor of people's daily existence that the the tenor Mm -hmm. of their existence is is this kind of like awful droning hum of like racism in the background of society that makes racialized people's lives unlivable and makes white people less human than they could otherwise be so how can we how can we address that? And and I think our questions, the chapters, were meant to kind of you know um, guide a gentle discussion uh, that also you know hopefully does hold up a bit of a mirror and ask some hard questions along the way to get us to think about our own positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say the, to add to that, in a way, it's less that we 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 didn't rank the relevance of the questions as such, but it's more like we thought about um, the kind of cumulative affect of reading the book from the reader's perspective. So we start the book, you know, um, with some really just like hard and direct information. You know, we answer, no, you cannot be racist against white people in a white supremacist society. And it's a bit of a controversial position, right? Ibram X. Kendi doesn't take that view. So, you know, right off the bat, we're kind of like saying there are some things you need to know about us and this book and how we're proceeding. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we, we open up into like, well, let's think about family. Let's think and it, and it softens a little bit there. And then we wait until later in the book before we start making some of those kind of um, uh, the jokes, I guess. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so the idea is kind of like we want the reading of the book to be a bit of like mirroring the journey of like what developing the racial resiliency necessary to be able to have like the more sophisticated conversations towards the end. So when we start talking about things like freedom uh, and what that means, in principle, a person who's reading the book sequentially should be more at a level to um, have that conversation in a good way than when they started the book. Mm hmm. And there's good like moments of signposting that too in the book where you're kind of reminding the reader of where you've been, where they can go if they want to jump ahead for more context that there's like this, this, you know, this intuitive sense of, you know, where your intended reader is theoretically at. And I like that concept of cumulative affect because, you know, one of the things that the book is trying to 
uh, move people to understand is that history matters. Like you mm. just flatly say that as a point. And that is a thing that is renounced in a white supremacist culture that wants to just preserve, right. you know, privilege, this idea that you can't change history, you know, let's just like, <laughs> let's just move on. Um, and it's a, it's obviously a convenient dominant position that, uh, that avows that. And so, you know, the book is, is, is critical of those things without being, um, just, you know, straight up condemning it. There is this, mm. and, and that's the interesting thing. It's like, it's explicit. You say like, you know, you wrote the book quote, because we believe helping white people understand race helps everyone build the kind of world we deserve and urgently need. Um, so it is aimed in some ways explicitly at a kind of, you know, a white audience. Um, but it also, it seems to me, grows out of your experiences as professors. Like there, there's a moment in the article that I mentioned before, um, that same passage contains uh, uh, AJ, a moment where you're talking about a student like standing up and interrupting you mid lecture mm-hmm. uh, at a high school and saying like, I, I won't feel guilty for the past. Right. The son shall not be held accountable for the sins of the father. Yeah, it was very dramatic. Um, this very dramatic like intervention mm-hmm. that you, you, you know, you don't say this idiot stood up. It's like, what is happening? What are, what are the power dynamics here where an invited university professor and a high school student are, um, clashing Mm -hmm. in, in the, you know, over power itself. And similarly in the book, Alex, you, you know, you write about, or you're both writing about how, um, there were moments at, at Mount St. Vincent where there were slogans going around, like it's okay to be white, Mm -hmm. um, this naturalizing of white nationalism. Mm -hmm. So I guess I wanted to use that as a way of like, asking about how the two of you in this book are writing about two of these big identities that you wear, which, you know, or that's a weird way to put it. Like professor, I know Alex, you've said is like something you masquerade as. And I love that, (laughs) that line, but parents are like something you are right. right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a difference. Like there are, there Mm -hmm. are things where you're, you're able to kind of take a step back from being a professor. Whereas, you know, your role as a parent is, is something that, it, you, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it, mm-hmm. it like chooses yeah, yeah. you. Um, yeah. and, and so there's all of these really, um, you know, powerful reflections on, uh, you know, how to imbue your kids with some sort of like set of, of, of ideas that allow them to navigate the world, uh, a deeply, uh, unequal world. But also like, there's this one part where you, you say like, it's important for elders to see their cultural practices, identities, stories, and values carried forward, but youth are not merely vehicles for their legacies. Mm-hmm. So in thinking about the kind of, you know, work of pedagogy that happens in the classroom versus the work of ped- pedagogy that happens like in the home, mm-hmm. how did you blend in some ways that and argue for a, as you put it, less ideological abstract way of educating kids and one that is more, I think in a way about um, respecting kids rather than just making them the object of idea of your parental like set of ideas, ideologies, politics. I mean, uh, that is, that's a wonderful question. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, AJ and I continue to kind of orbit around this um, as, as, as you say, as people whose waged work happens in the, in the Academy um, but who wear like a lot of different hats, like like everybody does. And for me, I think um, it was in becoming a parent and becoming a, a caregiver that um, that really allowed me to see the um, I don't know, like the deeply human, complicated 
aspects of what racism does in society and also how struggles for collective liberation bring us closer to a, a really sort of like deeply meaningful and sincere collective humanity, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like in my own experience growing up uh, the way that I did, I like I had those conversations, especially with my mom all the time as somebody who, I, I mean, I like to describe myself as ambiguously racialized. I, I pass a lot of the time for a white guy. Uh, in many ways, I think of myself as a white person. Um, and yet I've had these experiences in society quite jarringly, which remind me that like, despite my best efforts to, to sort of fit or my parents' best efforts to make sure that I fit, um, that, that I'm not quite, I don't quite fit. Me and my sister don't quite fit. And, um, and I bring, like, I feel like I bring that, I've always tried to bring that into the classroom, um, that productive sense of not, not being like a good fit for the place you find yourself. Because I think even, you know, even those kids, or I shouldn't say kids, you know, they're not all kids, even those people who feel like they are kind of the mainstream in some way feel like they're, they're an awkward fit for the world mm-hmm. as, as it is. And people can relate to that sense of alienation and not quite rightness and they, and they get it. Whereas obviously any kind of experience or a particular sort of oppression I mean, it may not resonate with them. So I think, you know, in some ways, my teaching informed the book or my experience writing the book that way too. I mean, I I recognize on on a daily basis that, and we recognize together, we say this in the book, that white people's lives are hard for all kinds of reasons. And I teach mostly white students in my classes at Mount St. Vincent. That's just the demographic at that institution. And uh, I can see that. I see that in a visible way. Those those people's lives are hard and they're certainly not the hardest, but they do experience all kinds of struggles. So the question for us became, how can you, you know, how can you sort of make that a site that is a potential site of building solidarity along lines of, of different kinds of struggles for justice? How can you use that feeling of having been hard done by to put people in touch with an experience that, that isn't one they've lived through, but one that they can productively help? Uh, contribute to changing. And yeah, and that includes those incredible moments like like AJ so eloquently writes about in the book, but you know, we've all had them of that, you know, young white man, especially in class who you start talking about, you know, some issue, especially around along the lines of racial or, or gender justice. And, um, and you can just see the the um, the veil coming down over their eyes and their face setting, you know, in this kind of like, Oh, here we go again. The you know the the typical kind of like bleeding heart lefty egghead prof lecturing me about like you know my life and how the yeah. world should be different. And I, I I've been that person. I've been that person for years. I I totally have lectured and harangued and moralized and um, was an ideologue. <laughs> I, I think this is you know I own all of that, right? I mean I think um, I think I I try to do that a lot less now because I mean it doesn't work, right? So. Mm. The book was definitely an outgrowth of my own learning about the failures of my pedagogy, mm. both in the university and like, and as an activist and organizer too, where I think I've traded in a lot of those spaces, you know, that, that, uh, that were, that felt good at the time because I could denounce something that I really disliked, but, um, didn't really lead to, uh, reaching people who weren't already convinced of, of the position that I was trying to advocate for. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 
AJ, you write about this in the book, but also in, in the work that you've published elsewhere, you know, like the, the kind of trying to achieve the pedagogical objective mm-hmm. uh, by, by, you know, letting, letting the person talk right. and, and giving them a route to understanding the contemporary persistence of, you know, colonial relations, all that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. um, you talk about teaching at Dal and, and asking students, you know, when did, when did colonialism end? Like when, when did we achieve a state of post-colonial being, right? right? But you also talk in the book about being a doubly diasporic member of the, you know, South Asian community uh, via the Caribbean and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, how do you kind of balance these two uh, identities in some ways? I think, um, yeah, like, so the, so I'll, I'll deal with the parenting one first, and then I'll take up the kind of the rest of it. So, the the bit about parenting and it's related to pedagogy in ways that I didn't expect. What I have a very young kid; she's only three mm-hmm. and three and three quarters. She's very careful to stipulate, <laughs> um, but she blows my mind, you know, about with the complexity uh, and intelligence with which she understands the world. And mm-hmm. I find that so much of my kind of like efforts at parenting is actually to just get out of her way as opposed to instruct her in any way. So, you know, she understands at her age that gender is fluid and non-binary. She knows and loves like Mother Earth and she pays respects to Grandmother Moon and she does ceremonies of her own creation to honor her ancestors in the everyday. And it's just like, I don't feel, I mean, obviously there must've been some kind of thing that she observed that we were doing, but I don't consciously remember um, doing much of that, you know, a little bit about gender, uh, but Mm -hmm. she sees it, you know, and she sees it and she interprets it. And, and what, and this is why I think the emphasis on structure versus individual is so important for us in the book, Mm -hmm. because right now she's sheltered from the structure of white supremacist society to some extent. She's still part of settler Canada and all that. But she hasn't gone through the sort of like long-term trauma of public education as yet. She's not yet in school. Uh, and it's interesting for me to think about, um, especially with like the pedag- like pedagogically reaching out to students who are still in like public school versus the ones who are in university. Um, a lot of them understand education in this kind of, I'm here to receive knowledge you know, from some sage, yeah. as opposed to I am a active participant in the education that's happening here. So mm-hmm. a kind of more like activist informed or at least democratically informed approach to teaching has always been a really important part. And and I really believe that like ultimately you can't convince anybody of anything unless they make those connections themselves. I can't pretend to understand ne- the neuroscience of it. Like the scientists will have their justifications about synapses and all that, but sure. really I'm just more in- like, it's based on what I've seen be effective. So for example, taking students down to the treaty truck house to do some work in support of indigenous solidarity has been enormously transformative for them in ways that a hundred lectures would not have done. Um, Mm. So actually doing the work, you know, and showing students that it's okay to not have everything like figured out. That's been like a big part of it. And and that also connects to my struggles, ongoing struggles, I guess, with my positionality as this double diaspora member, because in many ways, like, you know, brown people, quote unquote, brown people have kind of always been presented as model minorities 
structurally in conflict with, you know, uh, free African laborers in Trinidad, where I'm from historically, uh, because we were brought to replace them basically and, and as strike breakers, unintentional strike breakers. And then also grappling with how when we arrive in Canada, we're constructed as these model minorities who will just put their heads down, work hard, eat samosas, and maybe do some bhangra <laughs> and mm-hmm. see if Justin Trudeau will come along for the ride. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're automatically structurally in conflict with in- Indigenous people seeking to seeking sovereignty and seeking to reassert um, their agency over their lands. And as colonized peoples across the, um, generations and, and territory, it's really uncomfortable. So the work of actually um, working in solidarity has actually been, it's come full circle in some sense. Like it's helped me reconnect to land-based practices and ceremonies that uh, maybe exist somewhere in, in my body at that kind of physical and, and memory level in the intergenerational trauma of recouping from colonization. Uh, mm-hmm. that I just didn't expect, you know, that's not what I expected when I thought I would be doing this sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's what I'd say about communication yeah. Kind of let the work do it for people as much as possible. Which, you know, you've, uh, written about, uh, in terms of, you know, teaching this course in activism at Dalhousie, um, and, uh, uh, having to come to terms with the fact that, uh, I think you, you conclude that article by saying, uh, a course in activism should not be mandatory. Mm-hmm. People should come to it if they want to do it. And also there are kinds of activism. Um, I think you use the phrase like, you know, making yourself heard that the university uh, enshrines and, mm-hmm. and loves and, mm-hmm. and supports and then forms of activism that it regards as deeply dangerous. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you found a form of activism that was deeply dangerous <laughs> because it was it was about politicizing the territory that Dalhousie is situated on and, and, and the forms of expropriation, even in the context of giving well-meaning, like maybe well-meaning land acknowledgements, right? Right. Mm -hmm. This is, this is the thing that I don't know. uh, I wanted to kind of frame this in relationship to something the book argues around, you know, making media literacy every day, making forms of like critical literacy more uh, every day. Mm -hmm. You talk about like paying attention to what kinds of kinds of, jokes your kids are making um and intervening if you mm-hmm. feel like they're they're taking in stuff from pop culture and maybe alex this more speaks to your experience because your kids are a little bit a bit older that mm-hmm. is impacting their interpretation of the world like we're mm-hmm. at a moment right now where all of a sudden we're supposed to commemorate the queen's death <laughs> with a holiday <laughs> right you know there's a moment here where where this this response to the death of the queen is supposed to mean a national coming together. And if kids are consuming media, they're primarily getting um, this sort of like a form of mourning that is deeply infected by imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just, there's very little counter discourse. So how do you think schools and universities should respond to this particular moment where colonialism and the queen are being seen as somewhat separate entities at the, you know, like mourn the queen, not her legacy or something, you know, like this kind of weird thing that's <laughs> happening. Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, it's, it's like, it's like talking about racism and we talk about this in the book. Right. Um, but other excellent uh, thinkers and practitioners have talked about this too. It's like the thing that um, these so-called post-racial societies like the U S sometimes likes to lay claim to in Canada as well. Um, wants us to like that that 
notion hinges on a fixed, frozen understanding of racism as belonging to one moment in history and never changing. So as long as we're not burning crosses on people's lawns, as long as we're not running around in white hoods, as long as we're not lynching people, as long as we don't literally own another human being, then we're not racist anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, and that I think when you put it that way, most people would would agree that that's that's a silly and 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 a, at least somewhat problematic notion. And and similarly with with settler colonialism, I think you know it's like uh, you were mentioning earlier, Scott. You know this notion of of history. Wow, well, the past is the past. We can't change it. Um, I have lots of relatives who right now are are very invested in in mourning the queen uh, and feel deeply affected by this. Uh, I just try, I'm steering clear of them right now (laughs) because I don't want to offend them. But I do, I think this is like, I mean, there's so much in this moment to dig into. It's a really wonderful moment for public education just because it's like, yeah, okay. uh, So the government's declared a holiday, but lots of workers have to work anyway, and their kids are now afloat because the thing that we call education, which is really child minding and like, you know, indoctrination is going to be closed on those days. So actually that holiday to mourn the queen has now become a site of double exploitation for workers who can't actually find care for their kids and have to find a way to do their gig anyway. That's right. So, I mean, it, in some ways, it's like a perfect crystallization of the fact that these relations endure, that they shape shift, and that they continue to extract value from our lives and our beings in ways that are deeply problematic, deeply dehumanizing, um, and, and fundamentally like kind of reproduce that whole shitty system to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, within our institutions, I do, I feel like You know, I mean, I'm privileged enough to be a tenured prof at a university, so I have some protections from my institution, get away with saying and doing things that other workers, including um, precarious workers in my own institution, don't have the same protections for. But even I, you know, like there, there are certain kinds of like fights I don't bother to have with the institution anymore because... Not because I don't think they're worthy, but because I'm like, this is not the site I want to privilege anymore. This is not the site I want to pour all my energies into. And also there are real sort of like um, entrenched power relations, invested interests in this place that is so deeply hung up in seeing itself as the paragon of enlightenment mm-hmm. and um, that that you can fight forever and produce very little change. Or you can go... And like, you know, into a public park and sit on a bench and have conversations with real humans about things and actually maybe change somebody's mind about something or, you know, go, you know, start a kooky little YouTube show like we've done and, and talk mm-hmm. to people outside of that. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say people need to choose one versus the other, but I do think in this moment it's worth thinking, okay, is the fight for me to have with how these big institutions are going to reproduce this moment because they're obviously dedicated to it, right? They're going sure. to they're going to throw all their way behind it. Or is it um, to you know like like a savvy uh, martial artist to try and redirect some of that energy and instead use it as an opening to to open this space for conversations about these things? I mean, I'm I'm interested to see, for example, even in the mainstream media, how Indigenous peoples are using this moment to remind Canadians that the colonial relationship endures, and that's like in the background of a lot of these stories. But you're you're hearing that, right? Um, I think that's that's interesting and productive. This conversation that I I noted on CBC today when I was looking at the morning news around. Um, 
you know, Charles coming to the throne now, and now this question of reparations coming back around again, right? right? I mean, nobody's suggesting Charles is going to be, I, I certainly am not an, any kind of advocate for a progressive monarchy or whatever, <laughs> right? But on the other hand, like, I think just that moment, that opening for, for a renewed conversation around settler colonialism, around what that uh, historical relationship means between the crown and the first peoples of these territories, what that means for the current settlers on these territories. Uh, like those, those are moments where, where we have an opportunity to push the conversation just a little bit further. And then, you know, in this really interesting way, I think to connect it with, yeah, like, oh, isn't this interesting after two years of being told basically that you have to manage your health, your child's education, your child's health, all, like all these things that caregivers, parents, like whatever, were, were foisted upon. Now we get a, a snap holiday declared that only applies to federal employees. <laughs> and people are like, what the, you know, so in that moment that I think like we talk about right in the book, using that moment of anger, which and the anger is just like, oh, goddamn elites, how can they do this to us, right? Here goes yeah. Trudeau again. Um, but rather than turning it simply into this really shallow anti-Trudeau rhetoric, using it as a moment to say, yeah, like, isn't it, isn't that super, super interesting that you're pointing to this thing where you're feeling this uh, as, as a, as, as like a cutting edge against your skin, the skin of your existence in society. Let's like, let's just dig a bit deeper and see what that's connected to and how that like connects with other experiences you're having here. So absolutely. I mean, I think that's a productive moment, but it's, mm -hmm. it's always the question of like, who gets to, who's going to come up with the, <clears throat> a, a narrative that is uh, savvy and kind of engaging enough to capture public attention in the midst of all the noise that we have going on too. Mm -hmm. And who is allowed to speak? I mean, you know, there are people who have sure. been banned from Twitter for saying mean things about the queen, uh, <laughs> who, you know, protesters arrested mm -hmm. in London, you know, um, so Absolutely. It's about where these openings are. But uh, AJ, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, I guess, you know, to bring some of this monarchy talk back to some of the core themes in our book, I, in many ways, I feel like this whole discourse puts white fragility on display and in advance. It's almost like uh, like people are, are putting their white fragility out there as a warning <laughs> to not say anything, you know. Um, and it shows the way that society continues to structure and coddle the sort of feelings of people who have enjoyed, to some extent, a disproportionate amount of power, privilege, and influence, because uh, obviously, you know, um, who like at, at the level of structure, I think we can all agree that who the queen is and who the king is is completely irrelevant. If they're supposed to be a sovereign, if they're supposed to represent sovereignty, then that sovereignty comes with the the burden of history and the burden of like the power mm -hmm. and and accountability. And I think. It's that's why it's great to see, you know, what my brothers and sisters in CARICOM are continuing the push for reparations. And, can we, you know, we take up reparations in the book as well um, mm -hmm. in a couple of different areas. Um, and, you know, I think at the level of structure and agent, um, the way we the way we see white fragility and imperial nostalgia manifesting around this whole monarchy debacle um, is that people want to focus on the individual of the queen. And they don't mm -hmm. want to at all engage mm -hmm. with the structure of the monarchy and, and of British sovereignty and what that has meant mm -hmm. since, you know, the unification of the kingdoms in the 1700s. But more importantly, I think to what some of what Alex was saying in, in the asymmetric application of, 
this federal holiday on Monday, I think two really important things are happening. One is that um, it's by keeping workers who don't have the luxury of having that day off working and struggling to find childcare and all that, it is um, it is it is preventing the space for them to develop a political analysis of this. So it's not even a question of silencing the critical people. Uh, They will also, as you pointed out, Scott, they're overtly silencing criticism by arresting people and deplatforming people. Uh, But then they, what is the greater existential threat to the inertia of a settler colonial society is what happens if the mass of people start to develop uh, common consciousness and solidarity around these issues. So you, we keep people busy. We make sure that their life is just a little bit hard. And then the second and related piece to this is I think it's really going to be driving the push towards right populism. And, you know, mm-hmm. like I think what we've seen with the election of this new far right um, leader of the conservatives um, mm-hmm. is a real uh, attempt, you know, like I think those of us who think seriously about class sees it as, as little more than uh, an attempt, but to co-opt class language uh, in this mm-hmm. populist rhetoric about elites and, and whatnot, as, as if, uh, you know, like as if the conservative party represents or any political party truly represents the interest of working people. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Polyev's election, it, it, it speaks of a certain kind of imperial nostalgia in mm-hmm. a sense, right? Like the, you know, and in fact, he, he said all of these really, you know, uh, uh, saccharine things about the queen that fits, that fits with a certain mm-hmm. kind of just comfortable nostalgia, uh, for, uh, you know, a time of ramped up white <laughs> supremacy, kind of unapologetic mm-hmm. white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I think the, the way that you're using, um, humor in the book as a, as a communication tactic is effective at sort of skewering that without potentially like alienating people. And I see this like as a, as, as a, you know, a language that has a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a moment where you, for example, say um, that the last 500 years have been effectively a form of affirmative action for mediocre <laughs> white men. <laughs> and then you say, we know there are lots of brilliant, hardworking white men, relax. Uh, but King Charles is not one of those men. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Like this is part of the seeing him, you know, wave away things on his desk and have someone mm-hmm. else move small objects from out of his way. Or <laughs> people look at those moments and see a fool, right? Yes, like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that to me is a, is a potential opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love incidentally the way that you uh, articulate that language of opening, both in what you were saying, Alex, but also in your book, Uh, making sense of society. So there's like this moment in that book where you say, no one can predict with any reliability when openings and opportunities emerge for those ready to lay hold of them, nor is there any guarantee that change will be progressive or social justice oriented. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean we can create a roadmap or toolbox for changing the world, since contexts are constantly developing and actors and institutions of all kinds learn lessons and adapt over time. Mm -hmm. So the university is one of those institutions and so you're, you're saying like on some level, there is something that is futile about arguing against the consolidation of pr- privilege maybe in the university. And that's mm-hmm. why you're sort of looking elsewhere for different sorts of communication tactics and explicitly making this book more accessible, you know, as a, as a form mm-hmm. of anti-racist discourse. Um, and I guess, you know, I wanted to use that as a way of thinking about uh, uh, the book coming out at this moment. 
where you do have a rise of far right populism, a kind of unabashed white supremacy emergent in a in a really weaponized way in Canada. Mm-hmm. And how I guess like you are you worked through as a team the difficulties that progressives face for what you call the quagmire where you know something is not correct as you say simply because it's progressive and progressives have a hard time mm-hmm. talking to mm-hmm. people who don't share their views mm-hmm. um so i guess going back to the question of how you translated the interaction of uh, you know online with people over youtube into a book how did you gain insights in doing this sort of uh work intervening at the kind of grassroots in, in a way to make progressives better communicators. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, can I, I'll kick mm-hmm. this one off. Um, you go ahead, AJ. Yeah. yeah, I would say, so this is really where the kind of method of the book blended with our lived experiences. Uh, no, as professors in the classroom, for sure, as grad students um, and as uh, activists in social movements as well, because it's that those are the spaces where you try out the different techniques and mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, like experimenting with those kind of more evocative methods, how can we how can we make it so that we're not we're, we don't have to like outright at times say anything more than we need to so that people can can arrive at almost different conclusions within. The, it's not like it's a choose your own adventure, but the book is written with the idea that people should, depending on where they are in their own journeys, can read the same thing but then arrive at kind of like different levels of complex uh, learning as a result of it, depending on who they are and where they are. And that's why we think also like, you know, the book is, is for more than just white people as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's imparting the tools, right? Take them up as you will, but it's, it's like, yeah, you're, you're showing your, showing your work, showing your thought process, Mm -hmm. um, showing even your shame, like being really Mm self-reflexive about moments of, of shame, insecurity, indecision, Mm-hmm. Um, just letting people in rather than as academics sometimes do taking a position of almost like mastery where they've got it all figured out. Well, and I really, mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. think Scott, actually on that point, if you really nailed it there, I find, I, I found in my practice anyway, that the last thing anybody expects from a so-called expert in the, in the room is, is open vulnerability and critical reflexivity. And mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. disarming and it's interesting. So like some of the other work that I've been involved in is taking some of this de-radicalization and white fragility education work into like a kind of clinical environment in the faculty of medicine at Dal. And, you know, I, I've been participating and help develop the white fragility clinic that's done a little bit different from this, but, but so really powerful, wealthy, influential people are the people in that group, as you can imagine, it's intended for, all medical people in the province. Mm-hmm. So they are not accustomed to somebody saying, Oh, I, you know, I screwed up about this or, Oh, here's, here's a story about how I really badly made a terrible mistake, but tried <laughs> to learn something useful about it. And mm-hmm. there's like a kind of, there's like an ego deflating aspect of it that allows people to speak more openly. And I think that's an absolutely necessary piece for people to authentically learn and advance their own understanding. What a tool that would be if people, as you say in the book, could welcome the accountability that comes from making a well-intentioned mistake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In a hyper-competitive individualistic world, kind of recalibrate people to actually just, uh, you know, be open with their partners, with their family, with their Mm -hmm. students, with, you know, it's like very broadly applicable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have any... Uh, thoughts on that thread, Alex? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a really good question, you know. And I think, like for me, it 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 sort of revolves around an intersection that I've been struggling with for a few years. And and one of these one of the the, the points of this intersection is in the overprivileging of places like the university, uh, not only by professors like me who always want to build up our status by insisting that the places we work and the places we sell our labor mm-hmm. um, are somehow sacrosanct and are, are, are more important than anywhere else, but also in this tendency um, for many young people, I think especially to see the university as a site of activism, like the university itself as a, a source and site of activism. And I actually think that's a real problem. I think it's a way of sequestering activism. I think it's a way of encouraging a disconnect between communities in which institutions like the universities are situated and those students live, uh, but forgetting about that, 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 you know, sort of that dialogue, that, that context. And it, there's an easy way, and I, I see this a lot, and I definitely understand where this comes from, um, that, that whole feeling of um, trying to create change through moralistic denunciation and certainty, which is something that professors like me trade in all the time. It's like AJ <laughs> was saying before, right? One of the most shocking things you can do in a classroom is to say, oh, I don't actually know the answer to that. And that's a great question. And let's mm-hmm. see if we can figure that out together. Because <laughs> students kind of cynic, I think, no, I shouldn't say cynically, but I think they've come to expect the presentation of expertise. It's like whenever I'm invited on conventional media, I always feel this way. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to have a conversation, but they want me to play expert on some on yeah. some particular subject. Way and in, I think we, for sure. we yeah. And we we really see the limits to that, I think, increasingly. And one thing I'll say about this, this really um dangerous, but also I think weirdly uh like kind of possibility filled moment that we're in right now is that the the rise of a much more authentically grounded in the Canadian settler colonial context right populism that Polyev represents um, is a moment for us to have some of these super important conversations in a Canadian context that don't revolve around Trump, Trumpism in the US. And and to see how it's grassrooted here, you know, because um, you know, I did a bit of a deep dive into Polyev's rhetoric for another thing that I'm working on right now. And, and one thing I'll say about his rhetoric that really, for me, is an interesting uh, foil for Trudeau's gross, sappy, um, you know, overwrought, sentimental... Sunny um, ways, yeah. Yeah, sunny way, his affectation of whatever he thinks a social justice persona is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and uh, and and one thing you know, in one of his YouTube videos that I'm uh, that I had to watch to to get a handle on his rhetoric, Polyev talks about freedom, and he talks about freedom not by referencing capitalism, but by referencing um, the commons. And he talks about the peasants in rebellion against the king. Wow. And and I was like, man, I, I feel like I'm reading a snippet from. Uh, the work of Peter Leinbau and Marcus Redeker, Sylvia Federici, or something, talking about the, the, the commons in rebellion. And, and I was really struck by it. And um, AJ and I were at a different event um, back when the, um, the convoy protests were going on. Uh, and we were down at, um, at, uh, in Halifax's downtown, where a really robust and very energetic protest on behalf of the convoyers were, was happening. And we were part of a kind of this counter demo. And the whole time I was there, and this is not to cast any aspersions on on my fellow demonstrators, but 
I was shocked at how how wrong I thought uh, the counter demo got the messaging on that day. And then and the, the one thing that I thought came out of that moment for me really well is I had a very animated discussion with somebody who was there to support the convoy. And he came over and was fully prepared to do battle with us, just like many of the people on our side were with him. And I, me and my partner just started chatting with him about what had brought him out. He's like, what, well, why are these people calling me idiots? I'm not an idiot. I, I, you know, I'm against the mandates. I lost my job. And we started to talk to him, this big, big white guy in a, in a trucker cap and, and plaid jacket, you know, and um, in that moment, like it was clear, I mean, a lot of things were going on and white supremacy was one of them, like a sort of entitlement, a masculine entitlement to the world, uh, like a class-based entitlement to, to security. But this guy was also speaking in a really plain way and complicated way about the the grinding years of a society that was chewing him up too, that had been much busier chewing other people unlike him up for a lot longer, don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. um, that, that he felt deeply and sincerely and wasn't being... And, and was not being spoken to in any convincing way by the self-appointed uh, spokespeople of the the left in this country, and 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 I was really I was really struck by that. And I think you know this is one thing I I, I would sort of like I think comes out of our book, but in other things that that I've been working on, I'd love to see is a real sincere willingness to, as AJ put it, to do the work in the midst of communities who don't speak our languages already, who are not already convinced that we are the way and the light and who are struggling um, against a whole variety of oppressions and exploitations, but not against racism because they're not, they're not racialized people in that sense in our context, but who nevertheless can be convinced and can be brought on side to a, a much more humane, dignified vision of society. But, but not if all we do is to continue to sort of trade in the in the language of deplorability when it comes to their uh, their positions in life, you know, and, and I've been just as guilty. Of, I say that as somebody who's just as guilty of that as anybody else. Mm -hmm. But um, if those strategies worked, we would have already defeated racism. Yeah, people, you know, it, 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 I think it makes people feel good. It probably has some kind of chemical reaction in the brain to like feel like you've won an argument or to like really kind of like get your point across. But the, I think the the bigger question is always, you know, if you are you even first ready to engage in an argument, if you don't have in your head uh, at least an idea of what would what would be the minimum criteria you would need to hear to change your own mind, like really radically. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of I think like the the bit on generosity or or I think just genuineness really, and how we try to approach people with extremely different views from us is I always try and think like if this if if at the end of this conversation uh this person can't I can't conceive of how this person would convince me to think the way that he or she or they do then I'm not actually prepared to have a conversation in a genuine way and then I won't I'll try not to engage it in in that moment but doing the work to think about that and then in trying to invite other people to also think about that is just like it's like a level of basic um, respect that I think we lose a lot of in, in, in the push to populism and, and the reactions to it because people feel, you know, their backs against the wall and they don't know how to react to this. But oftentimes, like deflating the situation and remembering that even like most people who you have, you know, like that person that Alex is talking about, there are so many important things that would put us and that guy uh, at odds with one another 
but there's also a lot where we, you know, uh, would have a lot in common. And I, and I do think that mm-hmm. this is where the left, broadly speaking, has almost comprehensively missed the boat, underestimated mm-hmm. right populism and, oh. and just failed to um, adequately <laughs> kind of address the political moment of the last two to three years in particular. Mm-hmm. And I include myself in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sense that and I hear that, that there's no attempt here to um, adopt a position of sort of self-righteousness or of having figured things out. You're you're exactly saying the, the opposite in the sense that you're trying to in the book. And, and I guess this is one of the things that makes the book maybe difficult to co-opt by, um, you know, the right in the case of Polyev, like it, it would be difficult for him to just like conveniently appropriate this, the sort of language mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. you're offering uh, because you're saying like, you know, self-righteousness is a seductive position. Mm-hmm. Like it's a seductive mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. Um, to, to want to be, as you say, either the savior or the penitent mm-hmm. um, it's really, really seductive. And so, you know, vulnerability is, is a, is a third option where you have to think about your failure to communicate and move away from that dopamine hit of using language mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. puts somebody else in their place. And I guess I wanted to use that to talk about how the book is encouraging, like it's modeling this sort of self-reflexivity and in, in yourself talking about your own reticence in certain ways and your own just like, you know, not having it all figured out. Um, there's these really, there are these really funny stories about, you know, workplaces in which, you know, you describe a term, turmeric sleuth, um, you know, like uh, uh, reducing a South Asian colleague to just one person, one part of their identity uh, by asking about this, like this specific spice that has health properties, just like ad nauseum. Um, this, uh, for whatever reason, made me think about this, this moment that I had at, at Sobeys where um, there was a Karen and I use that term, right? Uh, knowing that it has been uh, uh, interrogated as a potential form of like mm-hmm. reverse racism or whatever. But I think it's it's a term that for me does not, it's not been uh, abused necessarily, or I'm not mm-hmm. abusing here, um, who at the self-check actually approached uh, a cashier to ask if she was Muslim. Whoa. And then, and then said, when, when she said yes, uh, you can't even tell. Oh, <laughs> Because this poor woman was light skinned and and potentially white passing, but had other cultural signifiers Mm -hmm. that indicated she might be Muslim. Mm -hmm. And I did not I did not confront the Karen, Mm -hmm. uh, but I did apologize to the cashier. Mm -hmm. And I still don't know if that like was the right move, if that person just wanted to kind of ignore this this racist microaggression or whatever i mean microaggression itself is kind of this outmoded concept i feel Mm. like um this aggression this aggressive act of diminishment Mm. um like what do you think what do Mm. you think was apologizing in that context the right move or was i being a sort of savior or sort of penitent in that moment what did she say what did the muslim woman say when you when you apologized it's okay it's okay yeah 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of not have the conversation. I mean, why would you mm-hmm. want to have that conversation? I guess, right? Yeah. yeah, commiserate, but you're commiserating with a white cis man. Like that's not the conversation you necessarily want to have. 
But um, I think on the other hand, that's like in that moment where, you know, if that person was feeling like reduced to this like sort of simple signifier of, you know, of this otherness of this religion that's all wrapped up in, you know, this globalized war and all this kind of stuff. In that moment, you're just that demonstration of like a basic human decency to say, as a shitty thing that person just said to you, I'm sorry that happened. I think that's like, in those moments, I think that that's that that means a lot, you know, and I, I don't know, I guess, from my perspective, I would say, like, like, just to follow up on what AJ was just saying, you know, if you could imagine sort of confronting the Karen, like, in that moment, what would winning a conversation with that Karen look like, right? Like, could mm-hmm. you imagine like she would get her back up, it would be a public thing, yeah. the cashiers at work, she's like, Oh, my goodness, I can't get into, you know, For like, sure. I think we talk about this in the book in a, in a variety of ways because people often have conversations about like, oh, I witnessed something in public. Like, what do I do? And mm-hmm. our our response is like, we don't always, we obviously don't always know either of us mm-hmm. in when we're confronted by situations like that. But it's never a bad decision to default to empathy, especially if what you're going to do is empathize with a person on the receiving end of that and simply you know, especially since it wasn't a violent interaction you were witnessing, it was simply this, you know, it was a it was a verbal diminishment, not to suggest that's not significant, but she wasn't, you know, jumping on the person. So like that, I think that act does mean a lot. And I think coming from somebody who would seem to be, you know, she's like, oh, no, here comes a Ken who's about to double down on this or something right. like that. And instead, you just, you know, you just offer this little bit of, of solidarity and sympathy without expecting her to be, to gush over it. I think that means something. I think that is, it's like, you know, the at the molecular level, that's, that's how society gets changed. Yeah. I mean, I feel like on some level right now, I'm like looking to the two of you to, you know, <laughs> exonerate me. And that might be the penitent thing. Um, but I, you know, to me, I connected to this idea in the book that uh, not everything needs to be dramatic. Everyone yes, mm-hmm. benefits, you say, when mm-hmm. anti-racism becomes normal instead of exceptional. And I do mm-hmm. hope that I wasn't at least grandstanding. But sorry, I AJ, I didn't mean so. to step on your toes. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was just going to offer, in addition to that, something that I've been doing since I was a kid that I've found um, useful. And, and it's like every time we're in a situation, especially if it's one we haven't been in before or recently, our first feeling is 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 kind of like shock and disbelief. And, and it's hard to act in that mm-hmm. moment. But what I try to do, and I've found it to be really effective, is I, I keep the what happened in my head and I play it out and I play out different potential ways I might react in the future when I encounter the situation again. And the one thing about, you know, instances of, you know, uh, racism in society and especially kind of low level intensity racism is we know it's going to happen over and over and over again because it's programmed into the nature of separate mm-hmm. colonial society. So by playing it over in your head and trying it out when you're like, you know, walking home or whatnot, it will help you to be able to react in the way that you would have ideally wanted to react, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the other day at Sobeys when it happens to you at Superstore or at the farmer's market, uh, mm-hmm. because it will happen again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense uh, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I want to, I guess, um, take the opportunity to talk about some of the really, really big uh, issues that you're also tackling, like not, not the communication and the, you know, making anti-racism every day, making things like just critical literacy, uh, self-reflection every day aren't big things. Um, But, 
you know, it seems to me that you're you're providing a really clear account of things that I feel like just don't get stated very often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like so the book is avowedly, for example, anti-capitalist. And that mm-hmm. itself can be a difficult position to take. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In a capitalist society where your students are in some sense, you know, conditioned to follow the path that will be that will lead to gainful employment that will be lucrative mm-hmm. and you can't begrudge them that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you want to critique the structural roots of the kinds of stress they're under. And so, you know, the fact that in the book you're talking about privilege. Yeah. For me, I think it's, it's absolutely central to, uh, to grapple with capitalism as a, uh, you know, as a central organizing system in the world today. And that's not, to reduce everything to a secondary effect of that system, um, certainly racism doesn't just come back to some some you know sort of uh, secondary symptom of capitalism. But I think that you know these different oppressions are uh, inextricably interwoven with this this giant map of exploitation that capitalism creates all over the world. And there's no point talking about one without the other. But in so much contemporary uh, environmental activism and in, in even a lot of uh, anti-racist work, capitalism is basically invisible. And, um, and many authors don't, don't think or talk about it um, either because they, their analysis doesn't include it or because like, like you've indicated, I think some people are anxious and, you know, it's still tainted. There's this incredible, I mean, this is one thing that. um, that many people who work in the field comment on it, but like looking at contemporary white supremacy, one of its central organizing principles and uh, the, the resurgence of fascism too is around this anti-communist rhetoric. It's, it's like an incredible part of that imaginary. So, you know, without um, validating in any kind of way or excusing the horrible crimes of the Soviet Union or its ilk, right? I think we, we're, we're well positioned to ask the hard question, like, what is it about a world where people aren't being forced to sell their labor to those who will buy it so they can't, so they won't freeze or starve? What is it about that vision of a world that scares people? Um, and, and I think that so much contemporary uh, racial animosity can be framed in terms of that artificial scarcity and that pitting of different groups against one another in this completely artificial fight over scraps from the master's table. And I wish the climate movement had the guts to take that struggle up. I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, climate change and the climate crisis is obviously, you know, one of the most important existential struggles of our, of our time. And yet, uh, one thing that environmentalism in the global north has been rightly pilloried for doing is uh, is sort of trading in, you know, like sometimes borderline, sometimes not even borderline eugenicist theories around overpopulation, uh, issues of consumption that refuse to interrogate who's driving that and uh, and where that comes from. Um, you know, sometimes technological fixes that that um, that are pie in the sky. But more importantly, this kind of like idea of the subject, the idealized subject who cares enough to do something about that world. And that is often, you know, figured in these in these sort of like, you know, um, in the in the personalities and bodies of 
people who are almost always white. <laughs> and, and, and it's a really, tr- I mean, there, there are reasons that, um, that ecological justice movements almost have to be the most careful because historically speaking, you know, fascists had great love for, you know, like this imagination of unpolluted territories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole Nazi notion of living space wasn't just about um, consumption and resources. It was about this idealized territory that was cleared of these um, subhuman races occupying it. And I think one of the big barriers to building truly powerful movements capable of changing the world is actually working past some of these assumptions. And when you have movements that refuse to interrogate their own class position uh, and that, that, again, seek to kind of like project themselves onto the world unproblematically, I think you end up in really bad places. And that's not to suggest that the climate movement hasn't done anything good, but the incredible whiteness of being is absent from Mm -hmm. considerations which pose humanity as some kind of like undifferentiated mass that's done these things to the planet. I mean, that's not even true here. We're not trying to blame white people when we talk about that. When I talk about that in making sense of society, it's not on, it's not white people as some kind of undifferentiated mass. It is the ruling class. It is uh, the elite. And like, this is where quite ironically, the language of right populism really has some traction with people because look at mm-hmm. Polyev, like whether he's sincere or not, what does he do in his first speech in parliament? He talks about taking on the elites. When was the last time Trudeau said something like that? You know, how that, how does that play for people who see their lives in crisis right now? I think that's something mm-hmm. that I'd love to see uh, as much as I love the, um, the heat of, uh, of the existing uh, justice movements we have. Like, I think, toning that down sometimes to provide a better analysis of actually what's happening that speaks to people in a way that are, that are really overwrought rhetoric doesn't. Hmm. And if I could just pick up on that, AJ, I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the ideas in the article you wrote with Lisa Tilly, um, global environmental harm, internal frontiers and indigenous protective ontologies. Um, you know, I, Specifically, like, what was the impulse for writing that article with Lisa? What did you learn about the climate struggle? What sorts of epistemological and ontological course corrections are necessary? You talk in that article about ways we need to learn to kind of see differently. Could you kind of help us unpack some of the ideas in that article? Maybe in relationship to some of the things that Alex was just saying about the climate movement and the sort of incredible whiteness of being. Thanks for thanks for finding and reading that. Actually, that's I mean, I would say it's always a delight to write with Lisa Tilly. Her work on political ecology and decolonization is always been inspiring for me. So working with her on that piece um, uh, for the handbook of of postcolonial politics was really rewarding and 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 finding the way to talk about this common thing that was driving us nuts so basically in a nutshell what was driving us nuts when we wanted to write that was this persistent idea that uh, you know quote unquote we need the enlightenment reasoning and enlightenment thinking now more than ever in order to mm-hmm. combat the climate crisis right and we were just mm-hmm. like listen the, the Enlightenment wasn't as brilliant as everybody seems to make it seem. 
Uh, it's like, I got nothing against knowledge and all that, obviously, but the problem is it gets into, you know, in the bodies of literature, we would call it, broadly speaking, the decolonial literature frames this problem of modernity. Uh, I guess you could say we, we see it, modernity as like a telescope. It allows you to see something like some little part of European thinking and reasoning about the world that was then uh, violently universalized and treated as if it had universal significance through the last 500 years of colonization. But it doesn't allow us to see the knowledge and ideas of the rest of the world outside of Europe with any degree of specificity. Uh, so we have this superficial understanding um, of, of worldviews and, and, and ethics um, from people who don't come from Europe. Um, and our, our, our basic proposition here was that, you know, if you look carefully, uh, you can see that indigenous people have been fairly consistent in the kinds of politics that they've articulated that's grounded in their lands uh, all over the world. And that's not to try and paint everything in a broad brush, um, but it's more to say leadership in these movements needs to come from people who are not only modern, right? Those of us who who are kind of on the side of, of Western modernity, so to speak, trained in the academy, trained to think that science is like a, you know, like only the kind of purview of uh, quantitative analysis and all this. We have created the conditions and, and the problems within modernity from which modernity no longer has the capacity to solve in and of itself. So where do you turn? You turn to people who are not only modern. And I think that the explosion of indigenous scholars across all kinds of different fields um, is really encouraging in this. And we read their work, people like Glenn Coulthard, Leanne Simpson, uh, Doreen Bernard here in Mi'kma'ki. Um, and, and when you see the way in which uh, indigenous people articulate uh, worldviews that are ontologically different. And, and maybe as I should say, you know, when, when we talk about protective ontology and ontological difference, what we're getting at is that Western ontologies, so the starting assumption upon which all other knowledges are based, um, don't make any space for other possibilities. But um, ontological starting points um, are, they're not just beliefs. It's not just that somebody thinks or feels something, right? It's an ontology mm -hmm. because it's the it is the nuts and bolts that goes on to cultivating whole systems of knowledge and approach and ethics. So mm -hmm. um, that article was an early attempt to describe based on what we were seeing with indigenous led land and water protections all over uh, Turtle Island and then also in uh, Indonesia where Lisa does a lot of her work and say, you know, the knowledge is not going to come from modernity alone. The knowledge has to be a partnership uh, with the best that science can produce, but led by uh, a sense of ethics and politics that has been grounded for thousands and thousands of years in relationality with the world as opposed to domination with the world. So that was kind mm -hmm. of what we were getting at there. And we try to end it very optimistically that if we could just stop fighting uh, the people who have this knowledge uh, that have fought tooth and nail over generations and spilled so much blood in defense of these principles, if we could support that, we being the moderns, right? If we could support that instead of Elon Musk trying to build whatever it is he's doing, like that's modernity, you know? Elon Musk is basically modernity um, at its worst. 
And yeah. that should not be our emphasis. Our <laughs> emphasis should be supporting the grassroots movements and people who have always been here, who have always been in relation with the land in ways that we need to remember, you know, to some extent, like modernity has hurt white people as well because it has severed so many white people uh, and settlers more, more broadly, including non-white people, severed our connection to land, I think, in ways that we need to learn from others. And yeah, this is the argument, incidentally, that Armentown makes, uh, Armentown's rather makes in On Black Media Philosophy that, for example, like climate reparations wouldn't just be about, you know, the cutting of a check. It's not just mm-hmm. a financial measure. It is about collective liberation. It's about, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I can paraphrase you, kind of respecting these protective ontologies uh, rather than, to use the language Alex was just using, you know, gesturing to an idealized subject who cares That's right. or who is innovative or, you know, who will in a, in a, you know, savior in the, in the form of Elon Musk as savior rescue us through some form of technocratic solution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I did want to, uh, you know, touch on at least the way that the book thinks about policing um, mm-hmm. in relationship to, so, you know, there's a moment where you talk about the fact that there are, yes, individual racists uh, in the police force um, and that re- replacing those racist individuals with a greater diversity of police police officers is just not going to do anything. And to mm-hmm. me, this is connected to the argument you make just in general in, in a lot of your work around the dialectic of structure and agency. You know, like mm-hmm. you say, discussions about forms of structural violence, such as racism, white supremacy, misogyny or settler colonialism often ping pong between the very abstract and the individually concrete Mm -hmm. stories tend to focus on big ideas or shrink this abstract vastness to the fishbowl of individual biography. And -hmm. I think like we certainly see this uh, in the debate around policing. Um, And and this is why you're clearly arguing in so much of your work for just respect of non-carceral solutions, like respect other systems of justice Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. not so punishing um, mm. and I guess, you know, on that point, I guess, uh, you know, to me, it, it's interesting to include in this conversation, the, the words of Beverly, Beverly Bain, who confronted, uh, Toronto police chief James Raymer this summer, uh, in the context of Raymer standing in for the entire police force, apologizing for structural racism. Um, can I play mm-hmm. a clip mm-hmm. of Bain? Yeah. We have been calling for having that funds be the um, you know, divested to communities to create sustainable housing, to create sustainable uh, community resources and services uh, from the by the community to support communities. None of that has happened. What have we witnessed? An escalation in policing budget, mm-hmm. a deployment of more police to communities in the form of community policing, which we have already said does not work. In fact, it puts us more at risk right? This is not about saving our lives. What we have asked for you to do is to stop, to stop brutalizing us, to stop killing us, to stop uh, carding us, to stop continuously um, um, stopping us and and, and harassing our children or black children or black sons or black daughters. That's what we have asked for. We have asked for the preservation of our lives. And what we have gotten instead is much more police. Yes, your police officers are responsible for their racism. When you talk about systemic change and you talk about the system, you make it seem as though it's a structure that's somehow 
a separate entity from that of what is happening on the ground. So this is what's going on, right? Is the ping-ponging that happens when elites suddenly capture, to, lose, to use Olafemi Taiwo's language, like elites suddenly capture the language of structural racism. It gets like reappropriated and sort of weaponized to exonerate individual police and allow them to keep working on the ground. Like, is this, you know, it, it seems to me that you're trying to give us, in this context of the book, like theoretical tools for gauging in just like a criti- critical way um, as Bain is doing, uh, mm-hmm. um, this like, yeah, this ping pong effect between focusing on the structure on the one hand, individuals on the other. And you're just kind of, is it fair to say you're trying to blend those two in order to understand a different way forward when it comes to something like policing? I mean, I, I think that's, that's a fair characterization in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think one of the things we miss, I mean, as somebody who loves to talk about ideas and ideology like I love that stuff right obviously I'm an egg academic and I I like to do that but um you know I think it's very satisfying and and the lines uh in society seem very clear when we do that right um Mm. because we can live at the level of these kinds of grand concepts institutions and structures which uh which don't actually which we know very well are not the things we experience on our on a daily basis in the in the course of our actual lives, um, but it makes it very convenient to talk about that kind of stuff, right? It makes it for easy conversations, or at least for engaging ones. And then people know at the at the other hand, there's this kind of like unending complexity of their daily life, all the contradictions there, and and that sort of becomes its own alibi for inaction because people throw up their hands and say, well, it's you know it's just a few bad apples, or the problem is in this particular policy, and if we just change that, and um, so like the the tyranny of the of the universal abstract and the tyranny of the kind of like the the minutia of daily life are both false options in in my in my opinion. I think you know we we need to do better to bring those two poles together and. And to live in that moment of tension, I mean, I think one thing that abolition politics has, I mean, I would say, I think, you know, the advocates have done, I think there's some people who speak so eloquently about this, but as a kind of concept that's been floated in popular spaces, it, like for most people, it remains a hopelessly abstract concept. And the conversations I have, especially with people who are not already convinced we're not either activists or university professors uh so when i'm out in the the real world people are are kind of flummoxed by what the alternatives to our status quo is along a whole number of lines but along policing lines really really clearly and i thought that that clip you just played for us was so wonderfully concrete and without shying away from those big questions and i think what we have to be better about doing is really you know making the the everyday imminent in those conversations about structure, but never shying away from the conversations about structure, finding better language for that. I mean, I've always been so compelled by the work that somebody like Gary Kinsman does, drawing on the work of Doris Lee Smith and others around like the 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 bathhouse raids in Toronto in the 80s and 90s. And talking about this, you know, this whole idea that the, the queer community in, in Toronto was convinced that it was the homophobia of officers, of individual officers that was driving the raids. And that was certainly clear and present in the treatment of, especially of gay men who were dragged out of these bathhouses and beaten in the street and arrested and all this sort of stuff. But 
once uh, once communities actually came together to contest this, what they discovered was that the law, the marching orders those those beat cops were being given came straight from bylaws against bo- common body houses that were being used to enforce this kind of brutality and getting those laws off the books defanged the police at one level and made community life better practically. A lot of people would say that's simply reformism, but it identified a critical uh, bottleneck in the system that was vulnerable to to good faith pressure that a a number of different groups could get behind and support. And I think with policing, I think that those issues need to be similarly addressed, right? What we're dealing with is a hugely important institution in our vastly unequal society that exists for the protection of private property and the interests that are are vested in it. And until we tackle that system and that way of adjudicating whose life matters less than somebody else's property, um, we will never get at the problem of policing. We'll endlessly end up with more workshops, more anti-oppression, more anti-oppression training, which this stuff, I mean, comes directly out of uh, military and police attempts, particularly in the United States in the 70s, to avoid structural accountability, to avoid addressing the uh, the looming, uh, you know, elephant in the, in the room of white supremacy and structural racism. So. We have to be clear that we're not we're not sort of settling into some kind of like minutiae of daily life by insisting that we take the experiences of community seriously in trying to find alternatives to uh, dominant modes of policing. But at the same time, we can never let go of that bigger horizon, which is the thing that allows us to see the connections between these institutions and the reasons they're sustained, the reasons that they have so much um, um, presence in our society, not just legally or or physically, but also kind of mythologically in terms mm-hmm. of the role the police play as as a uh, as kind of the superheroes of our white supremacist settler colonial heteropatriarchal mess <laughs> in this society. Yeah. And this is this is how Bain actually ends um, her 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 argument is by saying this is the performance of a patriarch. This mm-hmm. is the contrite performance of a patriarch. Mm-hmm. We do not accept your apology. Um, right. And people try and stop her. Like there are mm-hmm. multiple attempts to stop her mm-hmm. from speaking. And, mm-hmm. and it reinforces the, the point that you make in the book that, quote, those who refuse to move along, to stand in place, who stand in place and force a break in the inertia of normal society are the ones enacting politics. Like That's mm-hmm. what she's doing is enacting mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. in the face of what is this like reinforcement of a mythology, this kind of inertia. Yeah. Um, but AJ, did you want to follow that up? The only thing I'll add, based on what you said there, you know, and, and, and that piece you read is influenced by uh, Jacques Ranciere's thinking. And I think mm. it's in, like it's very appropriate in terms of thinking about the relationship of structure and agency. You know, what Bain is doing there is very much embodying and anchoring herself in both the individuals and the structure simultaneously. And I think in some sense, that's why like, it's almost, it's not a dialectical relationship, agent and structure. It's a simultaneous interdependent one happening all the time uh, and, and, and recreating itself in these moments. So, and that's why, um, you know, I guess to, to echo kind of what Alex was saying, it's, it's really, it's about um, understanding and acting in the now 
with the full knowledge of the whole structure. So when we wrote that piece that you were that part that you were you were quoting there, we were not we definitely didn't want to suggest to anybody like, you know, don't worry about any individual racist cop. It's more that in, in within the institution of policing in society as we have it today, all cops are by their organization and like and as an individual, they are acting in a racist society on the authority of a racist government because our society is built on that, among other things, such as heteropatriarchy. It's not either or. It's yeah. not an either or, it's both all the time. Mm. So remember that, uh, you know, the policymakers shouldn't get a free free pass, the politicians shouldn't get a free pass, the, you know, the teachers and the professors, all of that, we're all part of that. And that's not meant to discourage action, it's actually meant to make action more precise. Mm. So that we know, like, don't sweat it all the time about an individual racist, hold them to account. Uh, but move on because the the bigger fight, the transformative fight, has to be at the level of structure as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so terrific talking to both of you. Uh, I want to, you know, just congratulate you, I guess, on the book, which is full of like really subtle thinking and and humor and sage advice and this kind of like aphoristic resonance that I love. Um, which you know you can hear in the way that you guys are trying to work through these ideas the idea of making action more precise itself is an, an a, like amazing takeaway so thanks so much for doing this thanks so much scott i really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you yeah this was such a lovely conversation thank you for the invitation